This is That So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Giesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. Welcome back to That So Second Millennium. Today on the podcast, we're very fortunate to have Chantel Daughtry and Matthew Green of Fifth Place. They work in the mental and emotional health space. Um, we're very interested to talk to them today, and uh, so we'll let them introduce themselves. Hi there, my name is Matthew. And I'm Chantel. Yes, and as Paul said, we work in an organization called Fifth Place. And at Fifth Place, our mission is to make the world a better place by enabling the how. Yes, how to be less stressed. How to make better choices under pressure. How to be less anxious. Uh, how to not feel guilty when I choose me. Yes, and how to be more calm and peaceful. Especially when you're doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, and I find it interesting, of course, you know, as an American listening to your South African accent, I can, I can either say enabling the how or enabling the heart. It would sound almost the same, and in some ways that's exactly, that's almost a good thing. Um, <laughs> So, so why I, I have been curious, and I still don't actually know the answer. So I'm I'm going to be finding it out on air here. What does the term? What does the name Fifth Place mean? Well, so the 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 the, the term evolves out of a book, and I'm going to ask Chantel to remind me of the author of the book, Ray Oldenburg, because I always get it wrong. I like to call him Ray Oldenberry. But it's Ray Oldenburg who wrote a book called The Great Good Place. And it was written in the early 1980s. And he was really doing a, an observation of how society was structured. And he described first place as home, second place as the place of work, third place being the place where people would connect for community, things like parks, libraries, coffee shops and, and what have you. And so when we were look, looking and starting out, we observed that there was already a fourth place, <clears throat> the place of social media where communities mm. kind of coalesce or whatever online. And so for us, fifth place is the place of connectedness, community, possibility, well-being and equality. And we aspire to build a fifth place in each of us as well. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that's, has that, uh, has, has the, the Oldenburg concept of places been taken up um, by a lot of other people? Or is this really something that you're, you're revisiting and, and saying this needed to be paid more attention to? Yeah, so it wasn't so much that it needed to be paid more attention to. It was really about coming back to ourselves and really, and, and talking to um, both looking at building community because that's really Ray Oldenburg was talking. He was he was he was bemoaning the fact that community had been um, destroyed in the American uh, space uh, be because of sub suburban life. So people had left the cities, they'd left the towns, and they'd gone to live in suburbs. Where now you drove to places, you didn't come together. 
um, meet your friends and meet your, your, your community members at coffee shops or at recreation centers. And he was really just mm-hmm. saying that being able to do that was, was you know, it, it, it was a lost opportunity in the American culture. And so for us, looking again at community and how important community was, but also connectedness. And But connectedness starts with yourself. So when we want to be connected mm-hmm. to each other and community and connectedness is so important for us as human beings, we do need to start with ourselves and be connected with ourselves first and then look to how it connects us to community, the environment, and the world um, as a whole. Mm-hmm. That's that's fascinating. That resonates something that I read just this past week that um, in identity precedes intimacy was the claim that the author was making that we need and you know if we think of identity as being an intimacy with ourselves that that has to precede. That's that's the foundation mm-hmm. for what we bring to other people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's funny how things just build off of each other. Um, so so you. Um, in fifth place, you talk a lot about emotional fitness. Could you explain that concept a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so emotional fitness is um, it's the emotional equivalent of building physical fitness, but it's and it's a holistic process. So we just believe that um, our emotions really sit at the foundation of everything that we do. And typically, emotions have been overlooked. They've been seen as messy, unnecessary. Um, You know, actually, we need to, if we can't control them, then we must just sort of avoid them if we can, because they get in the way um, of us being rational, objective, and logical human beings. And we must, you know, aspire to that. Uh, I mean, that's the the myth. That's the, the, the story or the narrative of typically Western culture. And for us, what is really missing is the, the, the element of heart or emotion uh, and being able to reconnect to that and then develop our emotions and develop a way of regulating and working with our emotions in a resourceful and appropriate way that is going to, uh, is going to support us in our work, in our relationships, in being able to um, strive uh, for opportunities and to build possibility. So emotional fitness really sits at the heart of it. And we call it emotional fitness. Other people call it emotion regulation or emotion resilience. It sits at the heart of what we we say is is our, our framework, which is built on the five pillars. And the five pillars are thinking, nourishing, moving, relating, and feeling. And so it's, it's really a holistic approach to living in the world. Mm-hmm. So you have a podcast of your own and remind us of what the name of that is. The podcast. And I believe you're starting to. Yes. The podcast Sorry, is was... called emotions matter. Really? <laughs> yes. With an exclamation point at the end. So if you're, if you're looking for that gentle listener, that's, that's, that's where you'll find it. Um, and you're starting a series on the five pillars, as I recall, cause I have, yes. I have definitely subscribed to it and been, uh, been, uh, been listening to some of it with, I think, great profit to myself. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, yeah. 
you know, I don't know. I don't know how it strikes other people. This is a something I've pondered for a long time is that what is this business about, you know, my, my reason, my logic, my intellect being my intellect is a great tool. It gets me from one place to another, but it doesn't tell me where I want to go. So where is, I mean, in this, in this, um, in this paradigm that you're talking about, do we have a, and certainly, you know, you could, you could make the argument that, you know, as spirituality declines, you know, and is replaced by, secular culture and just, you know, distractions, consumerist culture, and you can attack it from many different directions. Um, you know, that in some sense would provide a transcendental, um, some, some goal outside of the intellect itself to go toward what, uh, what about, you know, in, in the, as you see it, as you guys see it, what are we, what are we trying to head toward as human beings? Um, and, and what does, what does emotional fitness help us do? So I'm not sure what we are endeavoring to head towards at the moment. If you had to look in, in broad swathes across the world, certainly in our experience of doing this work, what we've seen is that there is a great intelligence that resides within the body. And because our emotions are experienced in the body, we would do well to build our emotional fitness and uh, sort of become more or better friends, if you like, with, with our emotions. I like to use the metaphor of the intellect and, and who I believe I am, my sense of identity as the captain and my body as a, as a vessel, a sailing vessel. And there's this symbiotic relationship between the two because if I look after my sailing ship, it's going to take me where I need to go. If I attend to the sails, etc., then it will keep me in good stead. But further to that, the vessel has its own intelligence. And what we've seen countless times through therapy and through coaching uh, is that if we want a guide as to a direction, then cultivating an ability to hear the messages from the body will also do us well. Because our brain and our intellect typically operates from past experience. And if we want to get a new experience or a different experience, the place that we can find that is through the intelligence of the body. And in conjunction with that, the relationship that we build with the body by cultivating a better ability to feel. So it's almost, it's not so much it's a master vessel relationship as like, you know, a captain crew almost relationship. Yes. All of them have their own specialties and intelligences, and they bring all this to the table. I mean, as an example, sometimes in, in a therapeutic context or a counseling or coaching context, you ask somebody a question and they think they know the answer and they'll have an impulse or a thought that seems very left field or very random. And often that is the doorway to the particular rabbit hole that leads to light bulb moments, relief, uh, mm-hmm. a different perspective rather than filtering it through through the intellect. So what we've seen is that thinking and, and cognition has been really elevated to a place where it perhaps shouldn't be because it's a little bit out of balance. And what we believe mm-hmm. is the world thinks too much. And given the sheer volume of thinking that takes place in the world to tackle our problems – whether they're personal or, mm-hmm. or larger, 
is that we shouldn't have as many problems as we do if thinking was the panacea or the silver <laughs> bullet. Yes. And so what we, yeah. we came to ask our question is, well, what's the missing piece? And the missing piece really is building emotional fitness, learning to feel more and become more connected with your body. Hmm. And, and when you connect with yourself, you also, you know, once you, you're, you're comfortable and connected with yourself, you're then far more open to connect with others, especially others that are different to one. So those feelings mm -hmm. of fear and anxiety and stress are, are, are released um, and so that it's much easier to connect with others. And at the end of the day, you know, relationship is so important in our world and in our lives to make us healthy human beings. And obviously the first relationship is with ourselves, but then to build good relationships socially, whether it's with family or friends or um, colleagues, it just allows us to do that far better. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the... The point is, yeah, perhaps peace itself is the point, living at peace with oneself and with one's neighbors. Perhaps that's, that's, uh, that's a good, that's a good uh, objective in itself. So this, um, so you have a practice associated with emotional fitness that I have, you know, experimented with myself and found very interesting. And so it's got, um, well, what, okay. I was going to back up and ask you what, what led you into the area of emotional fitness to start with? Because I know you have a story related to that. Well, it goes back a little bit. And uh, it goes back to 2017 when we were working here in South Africa in the under-resourced school space. Just to contextualize a little bit what under-resourced means, it's effectively poverty, violence, uh, little to no income, less than $2, US dollars a day uh, is, is the kind of environment. And what we were witness to was the huge amount of trauma that exists in this space and the impact that trauma has on learning. And when you're in a traumatic space, as you probably know, you're in fight, flight or freeze and anything that's non-essential to survival effectively is shut down. So if you really want to fix learning or enable learning in that kind of space, then the place to begin is really to help the learners regulate the, the way they feel. And so we set out to solve this problem, uh, looking back quite naively, uh, I must say, because we wanted to develop something that would work with children as well as adults, because children process emotion differently to adults, as well as create something that works in groups, because children show up in groups, classes of children. And further to that as well, um, a lot of our problems that we experience as adults arise from childhood. So why not really go and provide something that children can utilize, you know, without having to live a lifetime of carrying all of this stuff. And then the, the sort okay. of other aspect was really to look at, at, at the context because Africa, South Africa, it's a traumatized continent and environment. We have the, the burden of apartheid here. Uh, we have slavery, colonialism, things like that. And so we really went on a journey, a journey of research and discovery and came out the other end 10 months later with this particular practice and process. It's a model of emotion regulation called shape of emotion. So that, that practice has um, some major components like 
visual, I mean, sort of the shape of emotion, you have to visualize the shape of the emotion, right? Um, where did that, um, how did your inspiration for including that component, um, how did that work? So the, 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 the process has four steps. And the first step is you need to feel that emotion. You need to feel whatever it is that you wish to release or it's a, because this is a full um, uh, uh, model of emotion regulation, you can also visualize that which you want more of. So it's not just for difficult emotions, it's also for supportive ones, but you need to be able to feel them. Then notice where they arise in your body. So, so find where they, they arise in your body and then observe observe what they look like. So the observation process is really a mindfulness-based process. It's a process where you go inwards to that place where the emotion has arisen and our emotions arise all over. So it's in, on, or around our body. Going to that place, going inwards, and really just observing. So most people talk about visualization. We talk about observation just allowing to show up what shows up. So not taking too much time mm -hmm. thinking about what it should be that should be arising, just right. allowing it to, um, to arise. And we, and we guide people through the process because this is often quite new and different and, you know, gosh, what am I supposed to be doing here? But it's just going right. inside and just seeing yes. what it is that yes. shows up. And a lot of the time in the beginning when we did this and we said shape, people said, oh, must I look for a, you know, must I look for a triangle or a square? I mean, like, no, 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 no. Right. We mean right. shape like form or object or, you know, it can be, yeah. it can really be absolutely anything. It can even be something that's not really real, um, but it's just what shows yeah. up. And then using that, that shape, what we call the shape or form and focusing on that and then using touch points which we have developed out of um, uh, uh, um, traditional Chinese medicine because they, they are acupressure points. Matthew originally did something called EFT or emotional freedom techniques, which uses some of these, but not exactly the same. We were very particular in choosing the points that we did because they needed to be accessible. They also needed to cover the entire body system. And so you use the touch points while you, 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 you see the, the, where the, the, the shape is and what it looks like. And then you're guided through the process to release and let go or open embrace. We, we call the, the, when you make it bigger, open and embrace. Um, and that, what it does when you do the process is that the shape changes or it gets smaller or it fades or it moves out of your move somewhere, moves in your body everybody's different. It does different things. And the, the idea is that if you do the full process, that you do it until the actual shape has disappeared completely. And if the, when you do the dial down, what we call the dial down or the down regulate, mm -hmm. and if the shape disappears completely, then you will find that the actual feeling is also gone. So um, it's like it's gone. We, in the emotional fitness class, what we do is we do three wings what we call wings because we found in a group setting we obviously can't check with each person how far they are and so we found that three wings does bring relief if not complete 
release of the the, right. the emotion as well. So so that's why we do three for the what we call the dial down or the down regulate, and then we do two for the up regulate because for some reason upregulation goes much quicker and and it happens far faster and so you don't need to do as many as as many wings as you do for the down regulate and so really that was the process and um it 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 it, it was almost it sort of just happened i mean obviously underpinning a lot of things underpin the process so the touch points underpin the process the, the words we use are very specific. They have an NLP component to them because we don't say, how do you feel? We say, what do you feel? We, we talk about what it is and where it is. We, we use specific, specific um, language, uh, languaging because it, it will allow you to do things that other ways of speaking will not. We use in groups, we use what is called um, uh, call and response. So in groups, when we say release and let go, people will, respond with release and let go. So we use a call and response process as well. And obviously breathing. We use the breathing process too. And all of these elements have a scientific, you know, research-backed underpinning. underpinning. And in our process and in our work that we've done as well, obviously we have like piles and piles of evidence um, that the process works and it works it it work it works <laughs> the only time it won't work is if you're completely like concerned about whether you're doing it right or not or stuck in your head so we specifically say to people feel that emotion you don't need to name it you can obviously there's nothing wrong with it but sometimes when we worry about what it's called we go back into our heads again and we want people to come into their bodies and feel that so it doesn't matter what it it, it is so to feel it um, and so 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 we really about the, the feeling of and the experience rather than the naming and being too caught up with with you know what I'm doing and am I doing it right? So sometimes people who are stuck in their heads, they won't get it. Mm-hmm. It won't work. And then obviously people who are very, very traumatized and disassociated. So if they, they don't yes. feel, then then we yeah. have to work with them very, very slowly or they need, they need to work with their therapist very carefully in terms of just being able to reconnect to their bodies. And we do that very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a much longer process where they start actually being comfortable with just simply feeling sensation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my own experience with it, like when I, when I've come to the process, it's nearly always been the the emotion or the feeling that I want to downregulate is this, I mean, it's really physically a feeling of tension across my abdominal wall. Like that's pretty much always it. And it's been fascinating to go through the visualization or the perception. And, and fortunately (laughs) I would have been in danger of being one of those people who was too much in their head um, at the outset of the process. But fortunately I've been on my own journey. That's helped me a little bit, probably prepared me for this um, to let myself see, okay. And not, I mean, I overthink it some, (laughs) maybe I don't overthink it as much as I would have otherwise, but, uh, but it, it's been remarkable. There's, you know, not every, this doesn't describe every experience that I've had with it, but there's certainly been this, like at the beginning, it's very, it can be very concrete. Like there's this once, once I, you know, get into the mode of like, okay, I'm attempting to visualize this. 
you know, there can be something and it's usually, you know, located there near my abdomen. Um, and it can be, it can be very sharply visible, sharply defined, you know, perhaps sharply textured, perhaps not, um, bright, visible, like bright, but, you know, intensely colored, I should say. And then, yeah, it does fade over the course of, of, uh, of doing three of these, uh, um, wings usually, usually sort of moves somewhere, you know, leans out of the body or sometimes leans in the early times it seemed to lean more in. Um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a fascinating experience. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly something that, um, I think a lot of, obviously I find it easy to believe, but a lot of people are, are finding value in it. So, um, and you talked about, and then I was fascinating. I had, I had a friend in graduate school who was, you know, very intrigued by Chinese medicine as well. So I, I wondered if there was a connection there with the, the touch points and what you, you chose to use. Um, if, if we can get a little nerdy for a moment, what systems are we activating from that perspective um, when we, you know, crossing the body with, um, with those touch points? So they're all, so what we did is we, we, we made sure that every one of the touch points all together will activate and will attend to every part of our body. So mm-hmm. if you go to the acupressure points, you will see when, depending on where you're touching, it will, it will activate or go to a specific part of the body or meridian. And those meridians mm-hmm. then talk to different parts of the, the, the body skeletal system, the, the um, organs, etc., etc. And so we made sure that whatever we chose, all together, if you do them all together, you will have you will have touched every single part of your of your of your your body. Major and um, yes. Mm-hmm. And it was it was done in that way to make it accessible, bearing in mind the original inspiration for for children, uh, so that. It was kind of simple to learn, but effective to get a result. So it, it wasn't too difficult to sort of explain because there's 14 touch points that we effectively ended up choosing and working with. Um, and so it really is just that part of that process in the simplification or rather providing uh, a simple methodology that you can use because if the child is very young or someone is in a very traumatized state, just using the touch points. Because one of the things that happens when you use the touch points is it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. So just using the touch points is a valuable tool to regulate and and kind of get your parasympathetic nervous system to come online and kick in and help by sending your brain the signals to release the chemicals and hormones that are responsible for slowing things down, for regulating heart rate, and and so on. Yeah, that, that sort of gives a little extra. You know, when you when you uh, present the ex- the practice, there's the the statement when you start a new wing, and if it's faded, just continue to do this in support of yourself. Like that makes makes a certain amount of sense. That that yeah yeah. I mean, we live so much in our head. We live so much on screens. Just having that physical experience, I guess, seems like a, a valuable thing to to do on a regular basis. 
Yes, and also when we um, we do also remind people that we that we um, release in different ways. So you may find yourself yawning or sighing. You may even cough or sneeze. You know, there are different ways that or shudder. And it's it, it, we've sort of as we've gone along, we've needed to remind people that this is very normal, because sometimes what would happen is that people because they they they've been socialized to say that when you're yawning you're bored or tired they would try and stifle their yawn if we did it in a group and we'd have to say it's absolutely fine in fact it's important that you do yawn because the yawning is allowing for that release Um, and crying you know sometimes people would start they would and they'd be like I don't know why I'm crying and it's like it's absolutely fine it's just your body needing to release and this is one way it's not necessarily that you're sobbing but you find that that your body's starting to release, and this is just one way of doing it. So um, it is important to remind people, and this is why we talk about coming back to your body, because we just don't know that. We don't know that when we're yawning, and it's not it's not necessarily because we're tired. When we when we sigh, it's it's part of that also bringing the parasympathetic nervous system online. Um, all of these things are just helping to release the, the 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 energy, release those chemicals that that typically we hold on to, and it's in the holding on to that we actually end up getting ill. Oh yes, yes, yeah, hanging on to that anxiety, and um, <laughs> I've heard it sometimes called the internal drugstore. We're so used to having that much, say, cortisol in our system that simply we don't feel normal without it even though it's, it's very destructive. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and of course not being that familiar with South Africa, it's, it's kind of, um, I'm, I'm very curious. What do people's, I mean, both cultural and specifically religious attitudes, you know, how does that uh, seem to, to make a difference in the, the practice, whether with children or with adults. Um, have you, have you seen a, an interaction there? That's a, it's a really good question because, well, it's a really good question because we live in a multi faceted, multicultural world. Uh, and in South Africa, it's an interesting country from that perspective. We have 11 official languages to give right. yourself. And so that can give you some idea of the kind of melting pot, if you like, of or mishmash of cultures. So it really gave us a lot of opportunity to experiment with people who don't speak English, who um, are not European, um, so culturally very different to us. And uh, we also we we found that it, it's very effective um, in in supporting a multitude or a, a wide range of diverse people across the age spectrum, across the sort of cultural spectrum, um, and also, in a way, across the education spectrum. We find, uh, again, this talks a little bit to the cognitive side, but people who are very, I want to say, heavily educated, sometimes struggle to be in their bodies and to express. And a lot of the, the, the other cultures that, that here live in South Africa, movement and dance and song is, is um, 
a very integral part of their culture. So they take to the process a little bit more easily because they, in general, are more embodied by default. Mm. 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 And and also, so the, the the flip side of that though is that um, we, there's a there's a high level of taboo and um, uh, what's the other word stigma. Stigma. So so certainly in the black cultures, things like depression, mental illness, um, that is is like you don't even talk about it in some instances. Certainly in more in more city areas and more urbanized families, it, it's sort of a little bit more. Um, spoken, not even spoken about, but accepted, but certainly in some rural areas, you know, you just, it's, it's, it's not even accepted. And if you do have a mental illness, then sometimes they say that you've been, you know, possessed by demons or, you know, there's there's some, some, something else that's happening here. So from a taboo and a perspective, um, and stigma perspective, what also, what this also does, and it's, it also helps in, in a space which is quite male orientated. You don't need to speak about how you're feeling and you don't need to say why yes. you're feeling the way that you are, which is, mm-hmm. is a real advantage. So we can sit in a group of people and a lot of the time, you know, you'd come to a group like this and, and most, and I have to say in a generalized way, but certainly in South Africa, you'd have a lot of men going, I don't want to go because I really don't want to talk about it. I'm not interested. I don't want to talk. And they don't, and nobody needs to talk. You don't need to say what you're feeling. You don't need to say why you're feeling it. And you can get relief. And I think that, you know, and it's not to say this is a be all and end all. This isn't to replace talk therapy. This isn't to replace other means of supporting yourself emotionally. But certainly it does allow one to get relief. And this is the big thing. None of us have been taught how to manage and regulate our emotions. You know, well, very few of us have. Um, well, and, before we start. Yeah, we certainly. Didn't. Yes, exactly. So so none of us have been given those skills. Um, they're just starting to bring into schools things about recognizing different emotions and using, you know, facial recogni- facial expression, which in and of themselves is not actually sound. But, you know, at least there's some recognition, but it doesn't talk to how to how to manage and deal with it. So... What this does is it does does offer a way of being able to um, to 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 regulate or release and find relief for those difficult emotions, and also to find a way to to make more um, a more supportive feeling, so that you actually enter your day, you enter wherever you're going, feeling more buoyed, more positive, you know, feeling maybe calmer. Have a, have a more peaceful sense about you and and those two so so reducing the negative and and making the positive more really do um, support uh, improved resilience and improved what we call emotional fitness on an ongoing basis yeah yeah I mean another another aspect of it that strikes me as you're talking here is that you know what do you what do addictions and compulsive behaviors and even to some degree obsessive thoughts do for one? They are, they're an attempt in many cases to regulate emotions that someone doesn't have the tools to actually, to actually deal with in a constructive manner. And that seems like it could potentially be invaluable for people like that. Have you seen 
any any sort of effects of that nature. Well, the it's it's an int- again I like the question a lot, and I think the context is because this month is is suicide prevention month, and mm-hmm. we had suicide prevention day last week and the podcast we did was about my story which is having survived two suicide attempts when I was younger and in the recollection of that by way of an example is my inability to manage the way I felt and the feelings I started out self-harming and then started with suicide ideation and then it got to the point where I just needed to switch switch it off and that was when I attempted suicide and so it's very key and so we we know how useful and powerful it is to utilize something like shape of emotion because we call it banning burying avoiding and numbing so those things that you described are all positive even though the, the sort of the outer appearance of it is negative they are a positive attempt to manage an emotional state that that is unresourceful. So addictions and so on, they're kind of a solution that's gone awry. Yes. And so we have seen where, um, I mean, we've worked in in psychiatric clinics with the work and and to, to great effect. So it really is, I think the ability to enable people to more resourcefully manage these emotional states is what is key. Instead of trying to avoid them through whatever means, substance abuse or self-harm or, I mean, you know, shopping, social media, excessive sport are all examples of that, which are not so desperate. I mean, drug use, you know. And we've seen that if people do engage, we've had clients that come with these particular challenges that by learning to use shape of emotion to regulate the way they feel, they can then be more resourced and in a more um, sort of, in a better way, more generative place to make better choices and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very powerful. What, uh, so you've, you've been working on this, you said, since 2017, which, of course, in some ways seems like a very long time ago now, and in other ways, you know, uh, that's, that's five years. <laughs> it's not, uh, not forever in, in human history. What, uh, what's, what, what do you see on the horizon uh, for what you're trying to do and for this emotional fitness concept? I think for us, I mean, Chantelle can also offer her perspective because sometimes we, we have differing perspectives. Uh, I believe that if more people understood and, and valued the importance that emotions play in our life and then not necessarily our approach to emotional fitness because as Chantelle said earlier, that's a way, but in, got involved in activities where they learned to manage the way that they feel because, as I said earlier, we believe that feeling is is the very much relegated and played down aspect of what it means to be a human being. And yet we've seen that the thing that unites us is, 
is our emotions. The thing that is common to, to us as human beings are, are our emotional states. And the research illustrates this as well. It goes back, I mean, we've seen research from late 80s, early 90s about the importance of emotions, the impact they have on physical health, relational health, mental well-being, and so on. We, we do also feel, so we're working on, on, the, on a book. Um, we do think that, that having something that gives a fuller picture of what we mean by emotional fitness just helps people sort of internalize it and understand it. So, so that's really important going forward. We're going to be focusing on that. We believe that we stand at a point in the world similar to where physical fitness was at a time when the only people who went to a gym were boxers. Um, you know, nobody went to gyms. They didn't, you know, physical fitness was something that you did by maybe playing a sport or going for a run. But there really wasn't a, a real understanding of why physical fitness was good for us per se. And we believe that's where we currently are in the emotional fitness space in the, people, world. Uh, in the world, that people really, they, they have a sense, but it's not really, it's like, yes, it's nice, but for somebody else, typically mental right. wealth and mental health and well-being has very, has been relegated to illness, not to wellness. Yeah. Um, and so there's very much, um, I think it's made it a little bit easier with the mindfulness um the mindfulness sort of drive. People are getting an understanding of, of, of mindfulness and how, how that is useful to us. I also do think that coming out of the last two and a bit years of lockdowns and isolation and fears around viruses, etc., has also heightened the awareness of, um, of, of our feelings of discomfort, anxiety, stress, burnout, etc. But you know, awareness doesn't necessarily lead to a change in behavior. So a large no. part of what we do is and what we are doing is around educating. It's educating, it's spreading the word, it's introducing people to the process, um, it's giving them options. It's like, here's another option, um, but really not expecting a huge sort of standing ovation because – People are still very much, it's still very much, we find early adopters. So we, so it's the early adopters that are getting it, but still a large sure. portion of people who are still sort of going, nah, don't think that it's important. You know, it's fine. Yes, I am stressed, but so what? Everybody's stressed. Really not understanding the the, the, the impact, the, the, the long-term impact. As they reach for another cigarette. Yes, as they reach for another cigarette. Right. Right. So cigarette, another Twinkie, whatever. My exactly, exactly. So a large part of what it, going forward. I mean, it, there's there's huge opportunity and possibility, but you know, if I think of John Kabat-Zinn when he started doing mindfulness-based stress release, uh, or really, he was it was, it was stress reduction. It was in the seventies, you know, and mm -hmm. and now we're sitting here in the 2020s and people are going, wow, this is amazing. We all should get into mindfulness. So, you know, it's, we're talking right. several decades down the line <laughs> and yeah. hopefully it's not yeah. going to take us that long to get people to really understand the importance of it. But truly our, our, there's, there's a huge opportunity, but also a large part is really just around educating, offering, speaking into the, into the, the process. And then, and then, you know, teaching. Normalizing people. it in the yes, sense. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly.
Yeah, I mean that's a that's that's the frustrating thing about being human is that you can count on other humans not to <laughs> universally adopt whatever insight that you have. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, like you know, physical fitness has been there for what? There's a great, um, I don't know how many people have actually read this, but you know, Benjamin Franklin is at least a person that you know I think suspect even people in South Africa have heard of the American named Benjamin mm-hmm. Franklin. And he has. Mm-hmm. What, when did I read this? It was something in high school. So, of course, you know, the 1770s, let us say, he's talking about, there, he, he writes something called The Dialogue of Franklin with the Gout. And uh, he has he has a dim awareness that, you know, he probably wouldn't feel all these twinges and pain if he got actual exercise of some kind. Um, you know, so he's talking to the gout and saying, well, but I go for a ride in my carriage. And the gout's like, that's not exercise. I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't count here have this and this um yeah and it's yeah we don't do what's good for us and then i you know i think from another perspective of how many how many centuries and millennia have we known that you know prayer silent prayer meditation these things are good for us and how many adopters are there of that well i mean some some and it comes and goes but yeah yeah but it's like do what you can for the people who are willing to accept it i guess yes that's uh, very much our approach. We don't try to convince, and it's always, well, not, I mean, sometimes being human, we also get a bit agitated, but it's about a, an offer as much as possible, and those that resonate with it and engage with it, then, you know, we, we, we work and share with, with those, like, like here, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, and, and that is beautiful to... I mean, that, that image of, you know, I have been through my own, you know, traumas and stressful experiences. And I wish that in the you know mid eighties, when I was a kid and this had just happened, that anyone had any idea that I would have needed this kind of help. So I'm grateful that children today somewhere are getting, getting some of the help that they need. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Did you have some, uh, did you have any closing thoughts here? I think, I think we've kind of reached a good um, a good point here. It's been a beautiful conversation. Any any last thoughts here? I just wanted to say, maybe if it's relevant, uh, from a spiritual perspective, that it can deepen your connection, whatever you describe that connection as. So certainly for us, for me, utilizing it as part of a deepening meditative or, or prayer practice and also to the extent that we, in our journey since 2017, uh, managed to engage with and attract the interests of two Catholic nuns. And one was so taken with it that she decided to take, because we teach it, and so we have different levels of accreditation. She studied the first level and, and became qualified in the process as well. And she really was a delight, or is a delight, because she's also, an, uh, I think she's by now an octogenarian. Uh, so nice. somebody that I think you know has lived quite a lot of life and, and it was a really nice affirmation of the work and, and what it was able to do for her as well. Mm-hmm. And so I know that that is an aspect of this particular podcast that, that is, is relevant. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole thing is that we're dealing with one reality and there are not these like 
hard breakpoints between the mental and the spiritual, or for that matter, either one and the physical. So that's that's is is, is she in South Africa? This person you were discussing? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The one the one who did the well, the course is in South Africa, and the other one is in Zambia. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I hope they have the chance to, to take this wisdom and pass it down. And that's that's the great human story when we're doing it right. Is sharing sharing the good that we've encountered with others. So. So. Well, this has been really great. I'm really grateful that uh, um, we had the chance to have this conversation and that uh, that you're doing the work that you're doing. So. Thank you as well. I think it's important uh, in light of what you said, just about sharing the story because you never know who's listening because whenever they listen, it's in their reality, their present time. So this is a nice way of extending the story into various present times for people Mm -hmm. in ways that we can't. So thank you Mm -hmm. very much for being open and engaging with us. Mm very grateful for this time and uh, hopefully hopefully we'll run into each other again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Yes, back at you. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.